Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. This is a podcast where John Stegatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. I hope you enjoy. Today, Nick and John are not with us. We have Tom Flaherty from City Church here in Madison joining us. Thank you for thank you for coming on, Tom. I delight. Um, today we're doing part two of the what is hell. And so in part one, we heard about Nick explaining um, what he called the, the orthodox, the orthodox viewpoint of hell or, or the traditional viewpoint of hell. Um, and it was really good. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one, because Tom is going to be talking about um, annihilationism or what, it, what do you call it? Conditional immortality. Conditional immortality, which is kind of the other side of things that we were talking about in the, in the first part. So if you listen to that one and then you come over and listen to this one, it might make a little bit more sense. Um, Tom, I don't know, you've been, you were in the Charismatic Church podcast, but if you just want to uh, introduce yourself and kind of tell people who you are, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, Tom Flaherty pastor at uh, City Church. I've got four adult kids. My wife's name is Alice. I've been in ministry for like 36 years. Um, yeah. Great. Cool. Love, uh, love Nick. Love High Point. Love Andy. Yeah. Um, really happy to be with you today. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. So I, so I guess we can just start out right away. Um, with your viewpoint on hell kind of give people you know as long of a version as you want of what you think you know hell looks like and your idea of, of what is hell and then i can just kind of cut in and ask questions as you go but if you just want to take it away you can go right ahead uh, okay andy i want to say a few qualifying things before i share anything about my position um first um, is what we agree on. And this is very, very important. The early fathers had a principle in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And here are the essentials that, uh, as Nick called it, orthodox Christians believe. Um, every human being will face judgment after their death. Second, after being judged, those who have rejected Christ will be cast into hell, which is a synonym for the lake of fire. And then thirdly, the punishment in the lake of fire is eternal. We are all in agreement. That's orthodox Christianity. Secondly, in non-essentials, liberty. What is the nature of that eternal punishment. The early fathers for three centuries made no definitive um, argument one way or the other. Um, is this eternal punishment ongoing torment? Or does eternal simply mean that its effects, the effects of the judgment are eternal or irreversible? So I will make the case for the latter. Um, and do believe that all souls will eventually be annihilated in the lake of fire. And that the actual name of the position is conditional immortality. And it's the, it's the presupposition that we are not created eternal beings, but that we have to be given eternal life. And so is this really a non-essential? Well, there have been two councils, um, in 1989, the American Evangelicals had a council on universalism, conditional immortality, and eternal torment. And in 1995, the British Council had another um, to rule on universalism, conditional immortality, and on um, eternal torment. And in both councils, um, it was said that universalism the idea that everybody's going to be saved in the end is heresy. Um, but both councils also 
said that conditional immortality, even though it's a minority view, is an, an acceptable evangelical alternative to eternal torment. I want to read to you the, the conclusion of the 1995 Council. It just says this. We recognize that the interpretation of hell in terms of conditional immortality, parentheses, eventual annihilation, is a significant minority evangelical view. Furthermore, we believe that the traditionalist conditionalist debate on hell should be regarded as a secondary rather than a primary issue for evangelical theology. Although hell is a profoundly serious matter, we view the holding of either one of these two views of it over against the other to be neither essential in respect of Christian doctrine nor finally definitive of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. Now, this was very, very important to me before I would even come on this podcast, because if Nick has me as a heretic because I have this position, then there's, then this is just, this can only be divisive. Mm -hmm. But if this is an accepted evangelical position, even if one disagrees with it, then what he is doing is giving um, people a chance to think about it. You got it. You got a chance to think about it. Um, in city church, either view is acceptable, as long as it's not held divisively. Mm-hmm. You eternal torment, you are welcome at this church, and if you believe in conditional immortality, you are welcome. But don't hold your position in a way that divides people. So that was that was very important to me. Um, Nick chose to call it the orthodox position rather than traditional. Um, Orthodox means correct belief and right thinking. (laughs) And um, I have a lot of sympathy for Nick on this because I held that position for 25 years while being a pastor. And I was just as strong, maybe even stronger than he was on why this is the right, this is right. Um, however, I'm going to be referring to it as the traditional position because I, I don't think it's right. Um, so I want to give this quote from C.S. Lewis because Nick obviously respects C.S. Lewis. He quoted him twice in the podcast on how, mm-hmm. and we need to keep in mind with C.S. Lewis, it's hard to nail him down specifically where he was on things because he wrote a lot of stuff and he was at different stages. But this is what he says um, about hell in the problem of pain. Quote, but I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as a new beginning. Hmm. That's from C.S. Lewis. So we have permission to talk about this. We have, a, we have permission to talk about it from an evangelical councils, two of them. We have permission from Nick to actually talk about it and think about it. Um, but we're not going to do it in a divisive way. And so, Andy, before I give you the position, can I, can I pray for us? Yeah, that, go ahead. Father, thank you for Nick. Thank you for High Point. Thank you for Andy. And, uh, Lord, this is a really, really important subject because of the reality of hell. The reality that people are going to go to either heaven or hell. And so it's, it's really important. Um, Father, would you give us the right spirit as we think about these things and as we consider these things? And Father, I, I pray for those that um, just haven't really thought about it. They just know what they believe and they don't want to think about it. Um, Lord, that they would give themselves permission to at least look at what the Bible says. Um, help us, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I got a little story to start us. Great. You've got a really good friend from Europe. He's unique in that he is wealthy and powerful, 
yet also known for his gentleness. When he was in the States, you traveled with him and found that he liked everyone he met, even those who hated him because of jealousy. He bluntly exposed hypocrisy whenever he saw it, but never for purposes of self-promotion. He just wanted to win people to the truth. When he went back to Europe, you stayed in touch with him. In fact, when you needed financial help, he'd send you money. That time when you needed a job, he used his contacts to open up a new opportunity you hadn't even considered. While he was in the States, he made other friends as well and seemed to have had the same effect on them. His friends became your friends to the point that you all felt like a family. Recently, some of those friends have reported to you something hard to believe about your mutual friend. They maintain that he has hidden torture chambers in the Swiss Alps, where he rounds up all his enemies. These very reliable people, some who know him better than you do, say that he has said this in his letters. They maintain that he tells them their crimes and then makes sure they have no means to kill themselves. His purpose is to subject them to a lifetime of pain. The fact that he has enemies does not surprise you. Anyone who is given to manipulate or oppress would find him offensive. That he would want to see them come to justice doesn't surprise you either because of his commitment to the truth. But would he ceaselessly torture his enemies? He often wrote in his letters to you to love your enemies. Wouldn't you conclude or misinterpret it in his letters? Wouldn't you call and ask him what the truth is? And if it is true, wouldn't you want to know the extenuating circumstances that make these seemingly contradictory acts consistent with who you know your friend to be? Yet the church has embraced the doctrine of conscious eternal torment for centuries without hardly raising an objection. When someone questions the doctrine, they are quickly labeled a heretic, or at least on the edge of heresy. I want to challenge you about what is being said about your best friend, Jesus. Does he inflict eternal torment on those who initially were the object of his love? Or has he been misrepresented? I challenge you to re-examine the scriptures, to join me as I raise the topic of hell so you can decide for yourself what the truth is. Okay, so that's my that's just my foundation of the why why it's an important conversation to have. That's right out of your book too, right? That's the first correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I am not just to be clear with anybody listening, I'm not trying to win you to how I think. All I want you to do is look at the scriptures for yourself. If after you look at all of these scriptures, you decide eternal torment is the right view, then God bless you. Believe. Um, at least you consider all the scripture and not just somebody else's opinion, what somebody else told you, and one verse of scripture. You actually built it after hearing all the truth. And in fact, you'll have more authority about what you believe because at least you know all the other scripture. I mean, that's why we're, that's exactly why we're doing this. Because when I, when I, I grew up in the church from uh, like a little kid, always grew up in the church. And I didn't know that annihilationism or conditional immortality was was even existed until this year until you told me about it and so i i that really bugged me because i was like if these are if that's accepted by the evangelical church you know like why don't i know about it and like and i've been in the church not like i'm only 21 but i've been in the church for a long time and i i've never heard about it it was just it was frustrating to me that's why i wanted to do this podcast to get these ideas out there so people can look at the bible and figure out what they are it was frustrating to me that there wasn't too i didn't know anything you know so, yep. There you go. So <laughs> let me tell you why this position is called conditional immortality instead of ultimate annihilation. Okay. It all revolves around what you believe about the soul and why you believe it. Conditional immortality is the belief that human beings were not created with eternal life, but for eternal life. 
when we have a presupposition that human souls are eternal, we have to become either a universalist, everyone will be saved in the end, or a traditionalist, those who reject Christ will suffer eternal torment. Why? Because you've got an eternal soul. It has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. This is why for 25 years, I believed in, in conscious eternal torment. It was because I had accepted the extenuating circumstance that souls were created eternal. So souls had this intrinsic value in themselves because they were created eternal. But then the question comes up, what does the Bible actually say about this? In the beginning, in Genesis, there were two trees in the middle of garden. the garden. One was the tree of life, and one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said um, that you, you don't eat of the tree of the, of, the, of, the, of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate of that tree, it says in Genesis 3.22, that God put angels with swords of fire to guard them for this reason. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Mm -hmm. It was never God's plan for people to live forever away from him. Mm -hmm. Now, on the first podcast, Nick said, asked this question, was this spiritual life or was this just physical life that they would eat it and they would live physically? Mm -hmm. And which, which is a good question. And um, my answer would simply be this. He said about the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, did you notice they didn't die physically that day? So in what way did they die? Spiritually. I, I would say they died spiritually that day, that it was spiritual life that was at stake in both trees. Hmm. Um, the other thing Nick said about this is you can't make a doctrine from such an obscure one-time text, that that would be very dangerous to say, this is the proof that Adam and Eve, being in the image of God, um, was that they weren't made eternal. And this is our proof because they didn't eat of that. No, I, and, and I, I appreciate what he said. But here's the other way to read the Old Testament is oftentimes things foreshadow a clear truth. Something obscure is foreshadowing something clear. So what if the tree of life is foreshadowing another tree of life called the cross. Hmm. That is the absolute center of the New Testament and that the central text is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I do not believe Adam and Eve were created as eternal beings. I, be I believe they were created for eternal life. And that they never entered into because they didn't eat of the tree of life. And people always say, I want to, you know, I want to go back. We want it to be like it was with Adam and Eve. No, Adam and Eve walked with God, but God never, they never ate of eternal life. They, God never walked in them, which was his ultimate plan. Do you, this might not be an answerable question, but do you know why, like they didn't eat of the tree of life? you know, or like, is there any like reason for that? Like, I, like it was there, you know, like why is like, it's there. And why do you go to the other one when the one of them was called the tree of life? You know, And I'm just going to give you the brief answer. Cause it's a little off subject, but yes, um, that's no, that's the, the presence of the serpent. The serpent manipulated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve of course is standing right next to it and mm -hmm. looks amazing. It looks awesome. And, um, I, I have a feeling the tree of life didn't look like much. Yeah. I don't think today that the cross looks like much to people. I don't think mm -hmm. preaching, I don't, they call it the foolishness of preaching. Um, doesn't appear like much yet. Oh my God. All of God's power is in yeah. the cross. All of God's power. All right. So the, the old Testament 
The majority Old Testament position about the nature of man, interestingly, was that it was a temporal being. Um, Isaiah 40, 6 and 7, it's quoted in 1 Peter 1. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So there's a contrast between something that's temporary and something that's eternal. Psalms are filled with the language of the temporary nature of the wicked. So I'm, I'm not even going to give you all these references. Psalm 21.9, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and will devour and fire will devour them. 37.10, they will be no more so they cannot be found. 37.20, they will perish like the beauty of the fields and vanish like smoke. 58.7, they will vanish like water that flows away. 68.2, as smoke is blown away by the wind, may you blow them away. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. Uh, 73.27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Now, even in the Old Testament, there was a minority view that said the soul was eternal. Okay? This was a group called the Essenes. Now, there's a guy named Josephus. He is the number one writer of Jewish history at that time, at the time of Christ. And he wrote extensively. And he wrote in, um, in, in one of his books, The Antiquities of the Jews, he tells about the Essenes. He says that the Essenes had embraced Greek fables and built on the supposition that all souls are immortal. The doctrine that bad men suffer immortal punishment after death. Then he says this about them. He calls such beliefs an unavoidable bait for such as have once had a taste for Greek philosophy. So there was a minority position that said souls were eternal, but it was not based on scripture. It was based on Greek philosophy. In Francis Chan's book called Erasing Hell, which is his response, he's defending eternal torment. Uh, he's to uh, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, which is on universalism, and he's writing the defense. And Francis Chan acknowledges that the majority position for the Old Testament was annihilation, that, that soul, the, the souls of the wicked are destroyed. They are temporary and they go out of existence, but that there was a minority view that uh, said they were eternal. He doesn't give why there was an a minority view and what it was based on. So Paul does not give the idea that humans were automatically eternal. Here's what he wrote in 1 Timothy 6.16, that God alone is immortal. He says this about the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.10, immortality was coming to light through the gospel. Paul did not teach that souls inherently have eternal life. Only God has that. But the gospel stunningly offers it to mankind. Peter compared humans to grass that withers in the flower fades. So where did this idea come from in New Testament theology. I'm so glad you asked. The first father that commented on this was Tertullian. He was an early apologist for the faith, and he writes this, I may use, therefore, the opinion of Plato when he declares every soul is immortal. He began his, his he was trying to argue with people that souls live past their bodies. So he, he quotes Plato on being immortal. Well, then um, Augustine picks up on Plato later on and uh, establishes uh, that, that correct dogma is against universalism because Origen, another father, a later father, he was trying to defend the character of God, that God is loving. And so he gave universalism as the, the, the end, that God is eventually going to bring everybody back out of hell, and everybody's going to be saved in the end, and the gospel's going to triumph through universalism. And Augustine said, um, that's wrong. Yeah. That, that's heresy. That, the, 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 that contradicts, in trying to defend God's character, 
you are contradicting the word of God. The word of God gives eternal judgment as a foundational doctrine. Mm-hmm. It, the, 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 the gospel, the whole tenor of scripture is that there is a heaven and a hell and that hell is a final place, not a purifying place. Um, so universalism, universalism was officially condemned by the church, by the Tom. Hey, sorry. My internet just popped out for a second. Okay. That back. was weird. Yeah, we're back. Oh. Yeah, so go back and, and continue oh. back from where you're at. All right, so here, here, here we go. What, what, what does Scripture say? Last week, um, you guys covered Matthew 25. Uh, yeah, um, I have it up right here. Yeah, Matthew 25, 41 yep. through 46. Yep, the, the righteous go to eternal life, and the wicked go to eternal punishment. Those on the left yeah. go to eternal punishment. And your response to Nick was funny because it's exactly <laughs> what most Christians do. End of story. Hello, it's right there. Eternal punishment. What is unclear about that? And so people take that, they take that verse and um, they just like, there it is. The eternal life is our sum and eternal punishment. Um, end of story. The Bible says it. I believe it. End of story. I think that's funny though because I... Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Nick had said in the last one that if you just take one little section of scripture and you make an entire doctrine out of it, that doesn't really make sense. But when I heard verse 46 and those, and it says these will go away into eternal punishment. And I was like, well, that's it. Well, I mean, I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm just taking one verse. and Which is, which is completely understandable. We want to believe what the Bible says, but we need to believe what the whole Bible says. And it's the hermeneutic principle instead of, Jumping to your own conclusion, you let scripture interpret scripture. So I'm going to deal with that scripture. I'm going to deal with Matthew 25, 41. But first, I want to look at all of the other judgment scriptures. Okay, so here we go. Okay. The unbelieving first will be destroyed. This is the Greek word apolemy, which we will talk about later because Nick talked about it. Matthew 7.13, Jesus admonishes his disciples, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. He promises eternal life for those who are on the narrow road and warns of eventual destruction for those on the wide road. He gives a similar warning in Matthew 10.28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says that hell, or the lake of fire, will destroy both body and soul. Now, this is very important. There are two different words. One is for hell, and one is for Hades. And they are not synonyms. Hades is a holding tank. Hades exists in the middle of the earth, there's two regions there. It's the Sheol of the Old Testament. Hades means all receiving. Everybody went there in the Old Testament. We have a picture of Hades in Luke chapter 16, where um, there, there's those that are being tormented, and there's those that are in the bosom of Abraham, the, the righteous that are waiting for redemption. Everybody went there. Um, but Hades does not destroy bodies. Bodies don't even go to Hades. Hades, only souls go to Hades. Death holds bodies. The Bible says in Revelation 20 that before the great white throne judgment, that both Hades, Hades will give up its souls and death will give up its bodies. And then after that judgment, it says both Hades and death are thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is different than hell. Hell is a place where both body and soul are destroyed, which is the lake of fire. Um, So I wanted to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. Paul warns the the unredeemed 
they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting destruction means that this destruction will never be reversed. Its effects will last for all eternity. Does destroy always mean annihilation or apollomy? Um, and that was the question that Nick brought up. Mm -hmm. so secondly, the unbelieving will perish. Again, the word apollomy is used. In John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible, Jesus says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that people who didn't believe will perish. He says twice in Luke 13 that unless people repent, they will perish. Paul says um, the cross was foolishness to those who are perishing. So the argument the traditionalists make, and Nick made this argument last week, that apollomy means ruined for its primary purpose, like in the case of Matthew 9, 17, where Jesus talks about a wineskin that is ruined for its originally purpose, and the word is apollomy. It still exists, but it's ruined for its, its, uh, its original purpose. Um, I absolutely grant that apollomy can be translated that way. But here's the thing about Koine Greek. We've got very few words, and so the same word can be used many different ways. Apollomy is used four different ways in the New Testament. It, that, that Greek word is used 93 times, okay? About 30 times it's used as lose. You lose something, okay? Lose or lost. So it, when you lose something, it's not, it's certainly not annihilated and it's not ruined for its original purpose. It's still whole, but it's somewhere else. And so it's lost and then you get it back. Um, this, a second way it's translated is ruined. It's translated ruined three times in the New Testament. The two other words are destroy, which is, means I believe, to be annihilated in an act of judgment. And the fourth way is to perish, which I believe is something that was temporary but goes out of existence. And so Nick's argument was, no, apollomy never means something that is temporary that goes out of existence. Apollomy has to mean, in every case, ruin for its original purpose because th that way the soul... The soul doesn't get annihilated. The soul is just ruined for its original purpose. So I'm going to let you be the judge. I'm going to give you three instances of polymy, and you decide whether what the, because the way they define them is by how they're used. So here we go. John 6, 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. To me, Jesus is comparing something that is temporary to something that is eternal. Here's the second one, Hebrews 1.11, about uh, Jesus being compared to the heavens. He says, they perish, speaking of the heavens, but you will remain. The heavens are temporary. 2 Peter 3.10 says that they will disappear in the fire or burned up in final fire. The heavens are going to be dis disappear. Um, and, but Jesus remains. So we got something temporary, something eternal. But here's, here's the most convincing one to me. Peter says this about blasphemers. Like beasts, they too will perish. And the word is apollony. This is 2 Peter 2.12. Now here's my question for you, bro. Do you believe animals are still alive somewhere else that they that when they died they just perished they they they, they were ruined for their original purpose and now animals are alive somewhere else and for what reason uh let, let's do a specific okay a tiger dies do you think that that tiger now is existing somewhere else and that it somehow didn't fulfill its purpose as a tiger and that it, what's it waiting for? Judgment? Hmm. Is it waiting for a resurrection? No, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You, you believe animals 
were made for God's purpose and that that purpose was a temporary purpose. They're beautiful. We enjoy them while they're here. Um, but, but the idea that they're alive somewhere else, no, we don't believe that. That's going to make some, uh, <laughs> that's going to make some animal lovers of my generation mad, but I don't, I, I, I agree. That's no, that, I'm not saying there's not animals in heaven. There's horses. Yeah. We see him coming back. I just don't know that it's going to be your dog. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ruin somebody's um, happiness. Um, so, Apollomy, it's it's translated destroy and perish, and I believe that it means its natural meaning, which is to go out of existence. However, I will, I I absolutely grant that it can mean something that doesn't go out of it. It could be something that's lost, or it could be something that is ruined for its original purpose. But Andy, that's not the only word Jesus uses. Listen to the other Greek words he uses about the lost. Um, the unbelieving will be burned up. The Greek word is karakaio. And here it is, Matthew 3.10. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His, or Messiah's, winnowing fork is in hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's Matthew 3. Notice the fire is unquenchable, but the chaff isn't. Wheat is stored, chaff is burned up in the fire. Jesus uses the same illustration a little differently in Matthew 13. He says, that the sons of the kingdom will be gathered into the storm like wheat, and the sons of the evil one will be gathered like tares, bound into bundles, and burned up. And the word is to burn up, Matthew 13, 30. Jude 7 and 2 Peter 2, 6. Here's Jude 7. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were, not, were, were annihilated, not continually tormented. Here's what 2 Peter 2.6 says about them. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The ungodly are going to be burned to ashes by the eternal fire, according to the word of God. Another word that's used is the unbelieving will be consumed. This is the Greek word, estheo, Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. The writer of Hebrews says that those who don't remain in Christ will have no sacrifice left for their sins, but, quote, only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So Vine's dictionary uh, gives the definition of consume to eat up. To say that the fire will continually torment people yet never consume them would, be, would seem to be a direct contradiction of what this, pas what this passage is teaching. And then finally, the unbelieving will die a second time, and the word is thanatos in Greek. John writes, blessed and holy are those who have, in, have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. The first resurrection, of course, is the resurrection of the righteous, where those who have died are bodily raised, imperishable, and those who are still alive are changed from mortal to immortal in the twinkling of an eye. The second resurrection, which happens after the millennium, concerns the unredeemed. Death gives up its bodies, Hades gives up its souls, and the unredeemed will be judged out of the books that recorded the deeds in their life. Everybody is, is, is judged in their bodies. So they will have their bodies back. It will be some type of resurrected body, but it will be a body mm -hmm. that is related to their body. Then it says, they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is called, quote, the second death. Will they live forever in the lake of fire or will they eventually die? In the first death, their bodies die, but their souls live on in Hades. In the second death, Jesus said both body and soul will be destroyed. The distinction between the first and second death is that in the second death, both body and soul die in the lake of fire. Paul says that believers are raised 
with an imperishable body. To believe in eternal torment, you have to believe that the bodies of the wicked are also raised imperishable. Hmm. Yet everybody said they were going to perish eventually. Then this last verse that I want to give you before I get back to Matthew 25, which to me is one of the most powerful, is about limited punishment. This is Jesus himself. In Luke 12, 46 through 48, he's warning those who he has put in charge of his people that they are at greater risk of judgment if they backslide. Here's what he says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. Okay, that would be the lake of fire. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know it and does things deserving punish will be beaten with few blows. Those who know more will be more responsible and thus will have a more severe punishment. Everyone being punished here is being treated like an unbeliever. Yet neither are given eternal blows, but only a punishment fitting to the sin. Some receive many blows, others receive few, but there's no mention of eternal torment, even though this is in the context of the final judgment. Now, let's reconcile all of the hell passages, and then I'll, I'll let you talk. Um, notice that Jesus calls the fire eternal. In Matthew 18, 8, they will be thrown into eternal fire. Just because the fire is eternal doesn't mean that which is burned in it is. John the Baptist said the chaff is going to be burned up in the unquenchable fire. Why would the, why would the fire be eternal? It will serve as a reminder for all eternity. And the different variations of judgment on people, you know, some people are going to have longer judgments. Some people are going to have shorter judgments. Why not just have an eternal fire? But, 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 well, and it also serves once everybody is annihilated. It serves yeah. as a, as a, as a reminder without having to take away free will. The idea that we are now robots in heaven and that no one could ever fall away. I, that's not scriptural. A, th- a third of the angels fell away. Um, The idea that you could never fall away, that no, the reason why God created us is because God is love and he wanted somebody to be able to love him back. That freedom is inherent in why we can receive love and why we can give it back. Stars can't love him. It's why trees can't love him. It's why animals can't love him. They're pre-programmed to do the will of God. Mm. Have you noticed that we aren't? Well, I'm wondering... You just said something interesting that you you said in heaven, it's not guaranteed that we couldn't fall away. Like, what do you mean by that? It's probably another podcast um, (laughs) because it's in my end times book. Um, But uh, people just make up stuff. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, we we can save that one because we are going to do revelation. Uh, Good, good. All right. So, so now let's talk about eternal judgment. Um, Hebrews 6 says that eternal judgment is one of the foundational doctrines of our faith. Matthew 25, which you said, those go to eternal life, and these the, on the left go to eternal punishment. So I want to quote Basil Atkinson. He's a Greek philologist. Here's what he says. When the adjective onios, meaning eternal, is used in Greek with nouns of action, It has reference to the result of that action, but not the process. Thus, the phrase eternal punishment is comparable to eternal redemption and eternal salvation, both scriptural phrases. The lost will not be passing through a process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results. In other words, eternal Salvation doesn't mean we're going to be saved again and again and again. No, we're saved once, but it has eternal results. Eternal redemption doesn't mean we're going to have to be redeemed again and again and again. Mm-hmm. No, there's one eternal redemption, that, but the effects of that redemption last forever. It, it, there are a number of effects to eternal life. 
we, we're going to live in heaven. We're going to be united with Jesus. We're going to have responsibilities. And it's going to go on. It's irreversible. It will go on forever. So what are the effects of eternal punishment? There are two. One is there will be a time of conscious torment for the sins against humanity. This is not about rejecting Christ, but about sins against humanity. Um, every time you go through every single one where conscious torments talked about, and it has to do with what you did to people. It says, um, Jesus talks about, it'd be better for you to put yourself in a lake than to make one of these children to stumble. Um, speaking fool to another human being makes you worthy of hell. Lusting and hating in your heart makes you worthy of hell. And this one is really scary. Um, sins of omission. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these brothers, you didn't do for me. The idea that uh, the, 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 uh, the, the ruler that comes, the scribe that comes and says, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus describes this guy on the side of the road. And, and are, are, seriously, are we responsible for everybody that falls on the side of the road? And I mean, how many sins of omission are we committing? It's terrifying. Um, how many sins, when you don't just include the ones of lust and hatred and how you misled people, but then you start including those, for those sins, there will be conscious torment. There will be, human beings couldn't bring judgment themselves. They were hurt, they were wounded, they were abused, they were trashed, they were belittled, and but they, they weren't in a position of power. And God is the defender. He's the judge of the whole earth. The human heart wants there to be a time of justice. And God says, um, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the justice of God. God will bring justice. And the torments of hell for sins against humanity are going to be horrible. Jesus warns us again and again and again, you do not want to end up in hell. That's what's that's frustrating. Like not frustrating what you said, but what's frustrating about what what you everything you just said is that like, and me and Nick kind of talked about it in the other one. I didn't even think about. I I rarely ever think about the sin of like you know somebody on the side omission. of the street omission. The sin right, of omission. It's called the sin of omission. You're like you know you're just like living every day, and I'm I'm thinking right now like okay like I've dro I've driven past people like who whose cars are broken on the side of the road. I didn't help them. You know what I mean? Like you're thinking about all those things, and I'm like dang that we don't talk about that in church. We don't talk about that much. Right. And, and you stop thinking about all of a sudden it's like, Whoa, I'm a really horrible sinner. I'm way worse than I thought I was. Exactly. And that's, that's how God sees it. Yeah. The, the, the prisoner, the homeless and whatever you didn't do to them, you didn't do to me. And I'm holding you responsible. That's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. And it's also, I think it's terrifying, but it's also promising because if he holds us to that standard, that means that, that we have the capability in Christ to do it. And I, and I think that it is frustrating because the young people my age, the one thing that I hear from all of them all the time is like, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And they've been taught by the church. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And then I'm like, I hear that. And I'm like, I knew that I'm a crappy person already. Then I heard that. And I was like, right now, I was like, I'm even more crappier than I thought I was. I'm and way like, crappier than I thought. <laughs> yeah. No, the, it may, but it makes the gospel more real. Exactly. Like, okay. And so those that go to the lake of fire, it's because their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Every human being has a choice of who's going to pay for those sins against humanity. Okay? Mm -hmm. Because Jesus has already shed blood to forgive me, not just of my commission sins, but my omission sins, so that I can be washed, I can be cleansed, I can have a fresh start every single day. But if you reject Christ, what you're doing is you're saying, I will bear the consequences I'm a good person. I'll, I'll, I'll take it on my own. Oh, friend, please don't. Please don't. You're way worse than you think you are. And, and God's way holier than you think you are. And hell is going to be way worse than you think it is. But that's one of the effects of eternal judgment. The second effect is the sin against, directly against God. And here's God's punishment for that. 
Jesus says, John 16, 9, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin in this, that they don't believe in me, that they, they don't give themselves to me. God's punishment for that is that you will be destroyed, you will perish, you will be consumed, you will be burned up, and you will die. You have chosen to reject the reason why God made you, which was for fellowship of yourself. So after you've been tormented for your sins and justice has been done for your sins, you will simply cease to exist. Um, you've rejected your purpose for being, and that is God's judgment, direct judgment for rejecting him. You will not exist anymore. So it's an eternal judgment in that it's irreversible. It will, you will never come back. You will never be revived. You will never have a second chance. But hell doesn't purify you. It doesn't redeem you. It is, it's, it's a tragedy when somebody goes to hell. It can be said of you what was said of Judas. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. To, to waste your life, to reject the purpose for living. So then, and this is my last thing, Andy, and then I'm going to let you talk. Is Tom, why does this matter? Why, if, if I am so deeply committed to the unity, and Nick brought this out, I'm deeply committed to unity. I'm deeply committed to, I believe part of revival is the church needs to love each other and come together and not divide over every little issue. Why, why would I even bring this position. I knew when I first saw it, when I first, I knew this is going to cause a lot of trouble for me. People who love God and love the Bible are going to hate me. <laughs> They're going to call me a heretic. They're going to, why, why make an issue of it? Why not just leave it be? People are believing whatever they want to. Andy, I'm going to give you the two personal reasons why I wrote the book on this and why I am willing to share it, even though I'm going to make people like Nick mad. Here's why. Number one, it has changed for me how I think about the gospel. The gospel at a heart level me for me before, I'm not talking about my rational mind, but I'm talking about my heart level. What I was actually feeling as I preach the gospel is these poor sinners have been created eternal and they don't know it. And if I don't get to them and they don't accept Jesus, they're going to burn forever in hell. And so there was an urgency because these poor people don't realize they're eternal. They don't realize what the horrible consequences are going to be. And so I need to get to these, these poor people that are eternal and don't know it, okay? Here's how it's changed. Now I see the gospel completely different. I see the gospel as, oh, God is offering eternal life to rebellious people that don't deserve anything they deserve, they deserve justice, but God is offering his own eternal life to these transient beings that are like the grass of the field, the flower that fades, that will, that, that they have no inherent value themselves, only the value God assigns to them. And God is inviting those people to be forgiven, to be adopted, and then to become eternal beings with him and live forever with him. The gospel has become really, really good news. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's amazing. What the gospel offers to transient temporal human beings is amazing. It is offering people that are rebelling against God eternal life. Okay. Here's the second thing it did for me. It made hell way more real to me. The other version doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense logically that you can be punished forever for limited sin. 
but it also doesn't make sense morally. Why, if torture, human torture is wrong today, why is God torturing people for all eternity and only keeping them alive to torture them for all eternity? It just, it morally doesn't sit well. Now, he is God. And so there's lots of things we don't understand about God. And that can be an extenuating circumstance. And if, if that's how it is, that's how it is. And what right does the clay have to say to the potter? But, but it, in my spirit, and I'm not just, just talking about mine, but in any non-Christian spirit, hell doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work, especially if they know who Jesus is. Jesus loves people. Jesus calls us to forgive our enemies. Jesus likes people. He likes everybody. Is the gospel really, you accept me or I'm going to eternally torment you forever? Is that really the gospel? Or is the gospel, I am invite. I love you, I, I, I died for you, and I'm inviting you to repent because you are on the way to torment for your sins against humanity and perishing forever. Um, frankly, hell makes a lot of sense now to me. And I preach a lot more on hell than I used to <laughs> because I believe this. I believe there really is a hell. Jesus warned us about hell more than he talked about the promise of heaven. It is bad. It is horrible. When people are there, they can't get out of it. And it will be forever. I mean, the end of their torment is annihilation. And of course, some people make the argument that isn't even that bad of a punishment. Well, I disagree with that. That's because uh, they don't understand the de like what how the depth of hell. Well, and 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 Andy, today, death a death sentence is preferable. I mean, uh, uh, life in prison is preferable to a death sentence. Why? A death sentence means I'm never going to have consciousness again. I'm. I'm gone. I'm, I, I'm never going to be on this earth again. I'm never going to relate to anybody again. And so the, the death sentence is very feared. And so ultimate annihilation um, is terrifying to no longer have an existence at all, except a memory that you are. And it's, and it's one of, a, 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 it's just, it just makes it very, very real. And so, uh, so I'm just going to read my conclusion and then you can say what you want to. I've read the letters my friend has written and talked a lot to him about this. I am convinced the traditional interpretation is wrong. I'm equally committed to not being ugly or divisive about it. If we were created eternal and eternal torment is true, he is God and I will love him. He is the potter and I am only the clay that knows in part down here. That last part is really important to me. <laughs> He's like, can you accept that if you're wrong, that you're still going to love God and God is still God? I'm like, dude, of course. He's God. I, I'm not God. I, I only know in part. But, um, and so that, was, that's, that part is very important to him. Yeah, I think that's important too. I mean, when, that's like the whole point of this podcast is not i don't i don't want to get everybody hating each other but i think that the church needs more unity and, and loving each other because we're a complete mess right now but but i i also in the last one i didn't say this at the end i think it's i think it's good to talk about a little bit um after people listen to a podcast about hell i guess two in a row now about hell um it probably makes people feel maybe a little gross or like or like confused because I know that this hasn't been talked about enough in the church, at least where I've been at. And I've, I have friends. Um, I, ha I recently had a friend who committed suicide who didn't believe in hell at all. And just, and he called himself a Christian. And these things that, that you know, and a lot of Christians that are younger my age who listen to this podcast, they, they don't, they either don't really believe in hell or they try as much as they, they use all their might and all their will to not think about it at all. So they don't have to think about how terrible a person they are and all these different things. And I think, I think after listening to something like that, it can make people feel weird. And I, I don't know, for me personally, I, I think that's great. And I think that I hope that young people feel weird. And I hope the young people go and research this further, because like you said, Amen. which was interesting. And, and I'd, I'd read this before um, that Jesus mentions hell far more than he mentions heaven. And, 
not that like heaven isn't important, but hell seems to be extremely important. And like, if we're going to ignore it as young people and if we're going to ignore it as the church, like good, like good luck. I don't like good luck with, with everything else. Cause it's, it's as important as, as everything else. So I think if, if you feel weird and if you feel like, like gross, I think that's like a good place to be at because we're talking about gross things. We're talking about sin and we're talking about hell. It's not well, fun. And, and bro, people, people warn their friends not to make them afraid of it, to warn them that, that there's danger over here. Jesus, when Jesus talks about hell, he's not trying to terrify people. He's just warning them. This is real. You're, I love you. You're my friend. Don't end up here. <laughs> You're better to lose an eye or a hand than to end up in hell. And he's just saying to his friends, which is the human race. He's the friend of sinners. There's a heaven and there's a hell. They're real. Don't end up in hell. And, um, and so we can all agree on that message. Yeah. I mean, if, if you see a blind man walk into the middle of the highway and you know, he's going to get hit by a car, you're going to yell for him to stop. Or you're going to turn and look the other way. And I mean, you're probably going to yell for him to stop. Right. Right. And you're not being judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 it's real. This is ha yeah. really happening. Now, yeah. if you, if it's just consensual, then maybe you would feel like you're being opinionated. But if it's mm -hmm. real and you can see him about to go in front of that truck, it would be unloving not to do it. Well, for Jesus, heaven and hell are, are it's, they're not questions for him. It's, it's, not, it's not like giving his opinion. They're, they're real. And I've noticed studying revival, Andy, that what happens in a revival is eternity comes into time and heaven and hell become very real to people. Yeah. <laughs> As, as God's presence is greater, all of a sudden, the things of eternity become very, very real. And it, that's how people get good saved, is because they're not just coming to Jesus, they're leaving hell. And it's not just the love of God, it's also the fear of God. Yeah, so I want to say one more thing um, that I think is important to say. Hell is like a dark topic, and I know that Satan can use some of these topics um, about hell or about Calvinism and Arminianism or about some, some of these, like, can you, how long, you know, are you eternally saved? It, it, stuff like that. He can, the Satan can use that to kind of run circles in people's minds and get people off track and off the gospel and to start thinking about God in weird ways. And I think it's just important to remind people of Paul talking about in Ephesians of the, about the flaming arrows. And it's like, th these are, to these are topics in the Bible that are important and that are good to talk about. And I, I love talking about them. But uh, but what Vince would always tell me, um, you know Vince, right? Yeah, you know. Of course. Vince of course. would always tell me is like, you know, Satan obviously knows the Bible much better than we do. And when, you can't let, you know, these flaming arrows that ta Paul talks about in the Bible, you know, they're, they're used to distract people from the truth. And so when and Ephesians talks about, uh, Paul talks about flaming arrows. You know, you can't focus on the flaming arrows. And sometimes Satan will use scripture. I've seen it in my friend's life. I've seen it in my own life where I'll be like, am I actually saved or whatever? And I'll think about it and think about it. And then it'll think me all the way to the point where I don't even want to be a Christian anymore. And I feel like that could happen here with hell. You know what I mean? I, I agree, bro. And it says that you quench it with the shield of faith. Yeah. Um, the shield of faith is not faith in your faith. It's not faith in your shield. It's faith in God. It's in his character. Here's what we all need to know. God loves us. Jesus died for us. First Timothy 2.4 says that it's God's will for everybody to be saved and for no one to perish. It says in 2 Peter 2.3.9 that, that God wants all to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and for no one to perish. God's heart is for you to be saved. God's heart is for you to make heaven. God's, when Jesus gives warnings about hell, it's because he wants you in heaven. And, and so God is for it. That's why Jesus died. And, and, and Andy, my, my defense against accusation of the enemy, those flaming darts, you're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You don't read the Bible enough. You're not Christian enough. You've committed all these sins. I never defend myself. And I never decide I'm going to try harder because of these accusations. I go right to Revelation 12. It says that the accuser of our brethren has been cast down and they overcame him as the accuser by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony about that blood. <laughs> I am, yep, Satan, I'm, I fall short. I'm not perfect. I, bro I didn't do this, should have done that. That's all true. But listen, Mr. Devil, let me tell you everything that's true. I'm also loved by God. And Jesus died on a cross for my sins. And I've given my testimony. I've joined his story. My testimony is about that blood. The hero of my life is not me. It's Jesus. Yeah. Devil will never tell you the whole truth. <laughs> tell you stuff that is true to accuse you and use that to beat you up with. But he'll never give you the whole truth. We are the beloved of God. Jesus for our sins. God wants us to make it. And he's done everything so that we can make it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think that's good. Um, yeah, it's about the gospel and just reminding ourselves of the gospel every day. Um, yeah, you have something to say? Well, if we're going to close, I, before we close, I want to pray for anybody that might experience those fiery darts. Yeah, go ahead. Lord, thank you for this podcast. Thanks for Andy for Nick, for allowing this conversation to even happen. Um, Lord, I pray for every single person that's listening. I pray that they would see your heart, especially those that are in darkness right now. And everything is dark and they feel accused and they feel lost and they feel, Lord, let them know um, their bad behavior hasn't changed your love for them. You love them. You are calling them to come home. You are waiting to run out to meet them and put your arms around them because there is a feast that you've made called grace. There is a party going on called the Father's love. And Father, I pray for everyone listening to this that not one of them would end up in hell, but everyone would respond to your tremendous offer of eternal life. Lord, help us do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this was part two. Um, and we had part one. So, so if you haven't listened to part one, again, go listen to that. Um, on Sunday, I want to do part three with Tom and Nick in the same room. We talk and we, we kind of hash out some of the, some of the disagreements because I think that that could be really helpful and really good. Um, but yeah, this one was really good. I like, you know, Okay, you came prepared, Tom. You had all your papers ready and everything. Your book, too. Where could people, if they want to read your book, where could they do that? So you uh, just go to Amazon.com. It's called Raising Hell, A Closer Look at the Church's Darkest Doctrine. And you type that in or type in Tom Flaherty on Raising Hell. You'll get, you know, it'll come right up. It's, it's a $4.99 to get the book. Mm -hmm. Great. Or you can get one on Kindle for a buck ninety-nine. Great. Cool. Okay. So I guess that's it for this one. Um, we will have part three coming soon. Uh, Tom, thanks for doing this. It was, it was fun. Um, but we'll always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Andy. <laughs> all right. We'll see all you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening.